Dear Father, we are so thankful for this wonderful epistle that John wrote um, to a local congregation who was growing up in their maturity, growing up in their faith, learning what that meant and how to enjoy eternal life even today in fellowship with you. We pray that we might also follow in that same journey of intimacy with you as we grow to know who you are and what you have done on our behalf. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may be seated. That probably seemed like a lot of verses, and rest assured I have uh, cut it down just a bit from what I had Paul read. Um, I don't think we're going to get through that much, and I want to take some time on the verses that we are going to get through. So instead of what's written in your bulletin, this morning's message is going to be called Spiritual Maturity. We're going to review a few of the things that we've done already in 1 John, and then we're going to move forward into John's pattern for his next spiral. Remember, he spirals a few times in this um, epistle, building doctrine on the doctrine that he's already laid down. So we finish our first pass-through of doctrine, and then we're going to start seeing how John went deeper after he laid that foundation next week. And remember, the main issue in this book is intimacy with Christ, intimacy in the fellowship. We want to remember, first of all, that we live a life of faith rest. We don't live a life of works salvation, but we rest in the finished work of Christ. We cannot take care of our sinfulness. That's not something we can do. Only God can do that. We can ignore it. We can deny it, but that's futile. That's not going to help us grow. That's going to stunt our growth. It will not resolve the problem of fellowship. Letting God's word reveal our sin, agreeing with God about its sinfulness, and that is what it means to confess your sin. Not to deny that what you are doing is sinful. And then resting in the finished work of Christ for cleansing of that sin, and that is the only way to maintain fellowship. But remember, there is a lot more than just maintaining fellowship that we have in the body of Christ. We also have intimacy. We can grow in that intimacy. This intimacy goes beyond a mended relationship to a loving, reciprocal relationship. A new believer can immediately enter into that fellowship with God, and that is what it means to be an infant in Christ. But intimacy increases with spiritual maturity. You see, we are meant to mature beyond the level of when we first believed. We continue to mature in the same way we got saved. We continue to believe. But as we read his word, there's a lot more to believe. There's a lot more to receive by faith. There's a lot more that we see evidence of only once we have believed in him for our salvation. This is what it means to have eternal life, to know God. That's what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse. So our main point this morning, our main idea, is we are made to mature. That is our position in the church. We're not made to be saved and then go live life in the flesh. We are made to be saved so that we can begin a new life and grow up just like we did in the flesh, where we grew from a child to an adult. We are meant to grow 
from children in Christ to mature adults in Christ. So a normal Christian matures into his faith, into the riches of grace afforded to him at the moment of salvation, and he uses those gifts to glorify God in nurturing, which is to edify God's family. So we begin in verse 9 with another one of those hypothetical claims that John has become so accustomed to using. That hypothetical claim is the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. In other words, I can love God without loving his children, my fellow believers. We don't need other believers. We don't need the body of Christ. I can love God on my own terms. John is saying that's preposterous. Loving God will work its way out into loving his children. This was the whole purpose that John had in writing this epistle. Remember, it's not just so that we would have fellowship with God, but look at his focus. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that your joy may be made complete. But not only that, this was the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with who? With one another. This isn't only between us and God. This is between us and God so that we can have fellowship with one another as well. We only make it to step one if we only have fellowship with God. We are meant to have fellowship in the body. We are meant to work together as members of the body. This is what it means to be in fellowship with God. And in this fellowship, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. He keeps us in fellowship. But notice as well, this phrase that you could almost miss. In fact, my first pass through and even my second pass through of this section of verses, I missed this. And then I realized this might be a huge key to the whole point. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. He has not begun his journey of maturing. The brother in Christ who despises his brother or even is simply cold-hearted towards his brother, does not care to know his brother. This one has not even begun his journey of maturing in what it means to be in fellowship with God. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to see Paul's different spiritual men, different levels of spiritual maturity. He's making a slightly different point, but we can see what he's doing here and then see what John is doing in 1 John. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul draws a dichotomy between the unsaved man and the saved man. The unsaved, the unregenerate, the one who has no new nature in Christ because he has not been born again by the Spirit. This man has no ability to comprehend spiritual things because he doesn't have that nature. He operates in his flesh because that's all he knows. That's all he has. This man in Greek is called the psuchikos, suke from the soul, but it's the natural life, the natural soul. Opposed to that, Paul writes, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. This is not only a saved man, but a saved man who has spiritually matured. He is in that intimate fellowship with Christ. And this required fellowship, something the natural man does not have. Because remember, fellowship is having something in common and basing a relationship on that commonality. Remember, Christ stooped down to our level and became a man so that we could have fellowship with him. But when he died for us and he saved us and when we believed in him and we were born again by the Spirit, he brought us up so that we could have fellowship with him by putting the Spirit in us so that we could have the mind of Christ, so that we could grow in intimacy and maturity in the faith, so that we could become those who are spiritual. Paul's Greek word for that was pneumatikos, from pneuma, the spirit. We are intimately controlled by the spirit. So these are those two men, the normal unbeliever who cannot grow in fellowship with God because he has no foundation for fellowship. He does not have the spirit. He has not been given the new nature because he has not believed. And then we have the spiritual man, the pneumatikos. He is the normal believer, the one who has grown and has matured. Unfortunately, this was not the whole message that Paul had for the Corinthian church, and it was a quite a scathing letter. Because the first Corinthian church, or the Corinthian church, had not matured in their faith. They were not normal believers. They were abnormal believers. First Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. He speaks to them as brethren. He is their brother because they have been born again in God through Christ. They are brothers, but they are not acting like it. They have not been maturing. They are men of flesh, sarkinos, from sarks, the Greek word for flesh. And Paul helps define this by saying this means they are infants in Christ. They are not only in the flesh, but they are walking in it still. That's what they know. They've been born, born spiritually, 
but they're still acting like they're in the womb. They haven't learned what it means to be born again yet. They're operating in their old habits. But hopefully, they'll begin to grow, realize the world around them. They'll reach that steady maturity. This is what we're looking for. This is what Paul wants. But unfortunately, he gets to the Corinthian church, and this is what he finds. (laughs) Big Christian babies. He finds them divided over factions. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. He says, no, you're all of Christ. There is failure to punish sexual sin. A man who is in an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law. The church doesn't want to put him out of the congregation. Paul says, no, that child needs to be punished. Father who spares the rod hates the child. You're helping no one. He deals with other issues of how they're taking communion. They're not respecting the body of Christ, but they're treating it as an opportunity to come and have lewd feasts together. This is not a maturing body of Christians. And so... Those men of flesh, normal young believers who will grow are stunted in their growth. Paul says to them, indeed, even now, you are not able. Now, 1 Corinthians was written to the Corinthian church about four years after Paul had first ministered to them. It had been about four years, and this church had not grown. Perhaps it had grown in numbers, but that's not what it means to grow as a church. It had not grown in intimacy with Christ. It had not grown into the knowledge of what it means to be born again, of the eternal life that is already true about them. These are the still fleshly believers, carnal believers, sarkikos, slightly different than the sarkinos. But this means to be controlled by the flesh. Not just physical in nature, but to be fleshly in their behavior, in their attitude, in their desires. These are believers who have not grown up. It says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Once Paul finishes showing them all of the problems that need fixing in their church, how they need to get over being big Christian babies and start growing up, he shows them what that means. In a passage we often use for weddings, because it is one of the best definitions of love in all of Scripture. And remember what John said was the result and the goal of intimacy with Christ was to love your brothers. 
1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is very applicable to a husband and wife relationship, but Paul puts it here as applicable to the believers in the church, loving one another. This is what that means. Then Paul reminds them of his metaphor at the beginning of his book. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. He grew up in the flesh. He went from being a newborn baby to an adult. And he did the same thing in the spirit. In his spiritual birth, he began as a newborn baby. We see that account in Acts, and it's something we love to go back and read again and again. And it's something that Paul enjoyed recounting four different times. He tells the story of his conversion. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So we go back to John and see what is the cure then for thinking we might be able to walk in fellowship with God while hating our brothers. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. If there is an issue in your heart that keeps you from loving your brother, take it to the Lord. Go back to the beginning of this book and look at what we are instructed to do to return into fellowship with him. Confess that. Admit that that is sinful. Agree with God that that is sinful. Don't say, no, this one really did me wrong, Lord. You don't understand. It's not going to help anyone. It's not going to help you. And in fact, it's not going to hurt that person near as much as it's going to hurt you. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Yes, Lord, my heart towards this brother is sinful. And let him do the work of restoring that fellowship between you. Now, there is a bit of a textual issue that I want to take care of here because translators do a fantastic job of translating the word of God. But sometimes they have to make decisions, and sometimes I disagree with their decisions. And I'm going to show you why, and I'm going to help, hopefully, keep you comfortable with your translations while I show you why I, I disagree slightly here. You see, in the English, it says there is no cause for stumbling in him. Unfortunately, in the Greek, this can have three different references. This en auto which is at the very bottom of your screen in red, is the word translated in him in the English, but it can refer to any of the gold, green, or purple text. There is no grammatical difference 
So the no cause for stumbling in the one who loves his brother, grammatically that is possible. There is no cause for stumbling in his brother, that is grammatically possible. There is no cause for stumbling in the light, grammatically that is possible. The NASB text has chosen to make this refer to the one who loves his brother. When he loves his brother, there is no cause for stumbling in him. Now, depending on how we interpret that meaning, that is perfectly accurate. But I don't think that's what the text is driving at. Because if you see, there is a little preposition before, en auto, as well en to foti, in the light, is the same sphere. Paul is simply using this in it. Oops, that's the in. In it, so he doesn't have to repeat in the light. Again, this is the use of prepositions, so we don't have to repeat something over and over again. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in it. When you're walking in the light, there's no reason to be stumbling. When you're walking in fellowship, when you're abiding in the word, when you're letting the word reveal the sin in your life, there is no reason for stumbling in that. If you're stumbling, you're not walking in the light. That's a good indicator that something's off in your Christian life. And it's important to remember that there is still a cause for stumbling in you. We do still have a sin nature. We don't want to get confused and say, I cannot sin anymore. There's no cause for sinning in me. There is still the flesh. And if we choose to shift our power to the flesh rather than letting the spirit empower our new nature, there will be stumbling. This is what John spent his first chapter warning us about. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what does Paul say in Romans 7.18? I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now, if the NASB is correct, then what it means that there is no cause for stumbling in me, he must mean his new nature, the nature that is being empowered by the Spirit. And this is possible because in 1 John 3, 6 and 3, 9, he is going to make that sharp distinction when he says that Christians don't sin. And this is one that's often clumsily interpreted. And in that case, John is speaking about the Christian who is operating as a normal Christian, the one who is in fellowship, the one who has grown in maturity. When we are walking in that fellowship, there is no Sinfulness, because sin can only come from, this, from the sin nature, from the flesh. Sin cannot be produced through the new nature by the Spirit. It is just not something that can be produced. Just like an orange tree cannot produce an apple. That's not what comes out of the, of the new nature. And this stumbling, cause for stumbling, is that Greek word scandalon, where we get our word scandal from. And here we have a believer who is a scandalon, 
who is a stumbling block. Why? Because he's operating in the flesh. He's not operating in the spirit. Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. In Romans 16, I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Once again, the Greek word scandalon. Contrary to the teaching which you learned and turned away from them. Where do we learn about the will of God? In his word. When we listen to teachers that turn us away from his word, that is a hindrance to us. And we will not know the mind of God because we will not know the word that he revealed to us. And we, like Peter, may be a scandal on in the congregation, turning people away from the will of God because of the will of men. We want to avoid that by having the mind of Christ, by reading his word, growing in intimacy with him, and developing in what it means to be a born-again believer, a normal Christian. 1 John 2.11, he says, But the one who hates his brother is in darkness now and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He has four statements about the one who continues to hate his brother in the fellowship. He is walking in darkness. He is not walking in light. There is an issue of fellowship between him and God, and it is his responsibility to take that to the Lord in prayer, to confess that sin, to agree with God that it is sinful so that God can take care of it by the blood of Christ. He is not only in that darkness, statically, he is walking around in it. And I don't know about you guys, but walking around in the house at night, in the dark, there seem to be a lot more things to trip on than there is when the lights are on. You can find things to trip on that you didn't even know were in your house. He's walking around in the darkness. He is going to trip, he is going to fall, he is going to stumble, and he might fall into you as he's doing this. He is a danger, mostly to himself. But it's also our responsibility to come alongside this believer and help them. This is what it means to love one another. Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2 gives us the phrase, law of Christ, but what does it say? Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You see, this brother who's in the darkness, this is our opportunity to love our brother. Unfortunately, once again, a lot of doctrine in a lot of churches teaches that if you're walking around in the darkness, you're not saved. You're not a brother. You're not part of the congregation. You're not part of the fellowship. We need to ostracize you. This is not what we're called to do. We're called to love this brother and to restore them to fellowship. And in order to be in fellowship, that sin must be confessed to God. They must come to understand that that is sinful. This is how we can help that brother. He does not know where he is going. Now, this might have a double meaning. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's walking around aimlessly. He's pulling this Bible verse and this Bible verse to support his position rather than just submitting to the Lord that his sin is sinful. 
But also he doesn't know where he is going in the sense of judgment. There is judgment for the believer. At the judgment seat of Christ, we will be rewarded for our work that we've done by the Spirit and not by the flesh. This believer who is operating in the flesh might think he is building a mansion, which he will be rewarded at the judgment seat, but instead he gets there and it gets burned up. He built it with hay, wood, and stubble. He does not know where he is going. He is looking into the future and he has created a future for himself that simply does not exist. He has put his trust in his own works rather than Christ's. And why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He has spiritual myopia. He is outside of fellowship. He is aimless in his activity. He cannot foresee the spiritual danger of his activity. He has mental attitude confusion. He needs help. This is not our enemy. This is our opportunity to fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 John 3.23 this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, first tense salvation, and love one another just as he commanded the outwork, the natural, normal outworking of that salvation is to be sanctified. And so love one another. Just like Paul has his four tiers of spiritual beings, the completely unspiritual because he doesn't have a spiritual nature, the normal believer, the infant in Christ, and the abnormal believer. John also describes to his congregation different tiers of spiritual fellowship. But this is not a polemic against these believers. This is an encouragement to these believers. We begin with 1 John 2.12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Now we'll see children referenced twice here. It is important to make a distinction in John's vocabulary, because although the vocabulary in English can hardly be different, it is very different in the Greek. There are two different words for son or child, in the Greek, that have to do with relationship. The first is huios, which is a son by law, one by heirship. In Romans 8, it says that we are sons by adoption. This adopted son, or the natural son, whoever is the legal heir, is a huios. But this is not the Greek term that John chooses to use, not because this is not true of us, but because this is not the relationship that John is drawing upon. We are sons by birth, sons by nature. Just as in Genesis 5, when we saw that Adam was created in the image of God, and then Adam's son was created in the image of, or uh, yeah, Adam's son was created in the image of his father, Adam. And so Seth 
was born in the image of Adam. So we, when we are born again, we are born in the image of Christ. This is what John is drawing on. So he does not use the word huias, he uses the word technon, a born one. There is another word for child that John will also use, and this is paidon. This has nothing to do with relationship to another person. It has all to do with maturity and age. So in 1 John 2.12, when John refers to them as dear children, as the technia, he's talking about them in their nature of Christ. They are born again. Your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. That makes you a child of God. He is addressing the entire congregation here. They are all believers. They are all eternally secure. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, John writes, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Spiritually born again ones. First John 2, 1 through 12, John's already used this word once in his epistle. My little children, techniamu, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Establishing their position in Christ. You see, even a huias in the Greek world could be disinherited, could become no longer a huias because the legal bond could be broken. But there is absolutely nothing that one can do to undo a tekna. No matter what, the way in which it was born cannot be undone. A child could be disinherited and no longer be a huias, but he could never no longer be a tekna. We are children of God. We are born again. We have that nature. It is a permanent attribute of who we are now. So we mature in that. And John gives three different levels of maturation. In verse 13, he writes, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you children because you know the father. Again, this is not the same children. This is Pidon, not Technon. The first one are to the parents, pateres in the Greek, the steady, nurturing, and responsible ones. See, a lot of churches are very focused in just having young people. We need more young people. We need more young people. You're going to have a spiritually lopsided church if you have just young people. You need people who are mature in their faith. This can be by age. This can be... Uh, Actually, a better way to say that, this can be an older person or this could be a younger person. But this cannot be a new believer. I've known plenty of people who have come to the Lord very late in their lives. 60s, 70s, 80s. 
These are new believers. In their bodies, they are fully mature. In their spiritual walk, they are not. But then you meet people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who have walked with the Lord their entire lives. And the spiritual paradox here is that this person, this younger person who has been longer with the Lord, whose faith is steady, tried, and tested, this one would be a spiritual father, spiritual parent in John's paradigm here. Whereas the other would be a new believer. You see, John puts himself as the spiritual father over this entire congregation. Even to the fathers, the young men, the children in this congregation, he refers to them all as his children. My little children, Techniamu. Because of all of these, John is the most mature in his faith. He is the teacher. He is the one leading them. He is the apostle of Christ, who is given specifically for that duty. And what does he say of these mature ones, these mature believers? Because you know him who is from the beginning. Now here's something interesting. If you remember last week's message, this kind of uh, flies in the face of a claim that was made by those who do not actually know him. This, once again, is a perfect tense. The type of verb, then, is perfective. The type of word is stative. This is cognition. This is to know someone intimately, but it drives it more intensely. This is to intensively and intimately know someone. Egnokate. Remember 1 John 2.4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So what is he saying to this older group of mature believers? What those ones who are not actually even in the fellowship, but claim to have special superior knowledge of God, they do not know him, but you do. You have grown in intimacy with him. You have known him and you have walked with him. And notice, you have known him who was from the beginning. John's alluding to the beginning of his book here. The first message that was handed down by the apostles. That message that was from the beginning. What they had heard, what they had seen with their eyes, and what they had looked at and touched. They had taken the apostolic message, they had believed it about Christ, and they had continued to believe it. And so they matured in their faith. They became parents in the faith. Now this is something interesting. Just because one is a parent does not mean they don't have parents. I mean, that was quite a revelation to me when I was a child, that this old woman that hangs around is actually my dad's mother. Just like my mom, who was a young woman, was my mother. I'm waiting for the day that my nephew comes to understand that. He's almost three. It's going to be fun to watch. When he starts to realize the relationships between people. So these parents doesn't mean that they are 
the most superior people in the congregation, but it does mean that they are steady and mature. They may have people who minister to them, who have people who minister to them. But this person is a nurturer. John's next category of people is the youths, the youths in Christ, the energetic, the excited, and the fast maturing. I don't know how many of you had the opportunity, it's not necessarily to be preferred, but the opportunity to come to Christ later in your life and how fast you mature. It's like a bean sprout just shooting up. You cannot get enough of his word. You don't want to do anything but read his word. And you grow, and you grow, and you grow. This Greek word, neoniskos, has the idea of vigor, of vitality, of virility. These youths are strong and they're growing, but guess what? Their faith isn't yet tried and tested. Their faith has not matured into a steady maturity. In fact, Paul tells us not to make these ones leaders in the church. We're to make the fathers leaders in the church while the youths are growing up quickly to be that sort of mature believer. They have not yet had their faith tested so that they can show that it is resilient, that they have grown in that maturity and intimacy with Christ for a long period of time. We don't want new believers being the only leaders we have. But there is a lot of good that they do in the church, especially those uh, young gentlemen who go to seminary. They spend time learning and learning and learning and learning, and that's all they do, essentially. But that doesn't mean that these are the most mature in their faith. This takes time, tempering, weathering. These are the neoniskoi, the youths in Christ. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. This word overcome is a favorite of John's. I think it occurs five times outside of the writing of John and 27 times in John's writing. And comparatively, John did not write as much as Paul, who I think only uses this word three times, all in the book of Romans. One outside of Romans, I think. Because you have overcome the evil one. John uses this almost as a technical term for first tense salvation. First John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcame the world, our faith. These aren't super overcomers. These aren't believers who excelled beyond the other believers. These are all who have put their faith in Christ. They have become overcomers because Christ is an overcomer. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is an overcomer, the one who has believed and so received salvation. But just because John uses this almost everywhere in a technical sense of justification does not mean that he cannot use it 
in the sense of sanctification as I believe he does here. In fact, this is one of only three places I believe he does this. The other one is when he repeats this exact statement again in the next verse. And then in 1 John 2, no, 4, 3 through 4. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in, the, in you than he who is in the world. Now this must, out of necessity, emanate from their justification in Christ, which is overcoming. But you see this in 1 John 4, 3 and 4, and then 1 John 2, 13 and 14 are also the only times that John ever uses this in the perfective aspect, because this is an intensification of their overcoming faith that justified them. This intensification that drives them to work that salvation out into their outer limbs, into their sanctification as well. They were able to overcome the world by faith. And continuing in that faith, they were able to overcome the false doctrine that had come into the church because they continued in that faith. They were sanctified. The same thing here. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Because their salvation that came by being overcomers through faith continued into their sanctification. And when temptation came, they were able to say, no, thank you. I have something better in Christ. Now we're going to come back to this one next week because as we'll see, there's a pattern and Paul or John is setting that pattern up in verse 13. So he can continue that pattern. He's going to refer to the fathers again. He's going to refer to the young men again, and then he's going to refer to the children a second time. The first time he is, he is commending them for their successes in their walk. And the second time around, he's going to give them su some suggestions for further maturity. So here, to the fathers, you've known him who was from the beginning. This is a commendation. He is saying, good job. You have matured. You have continued in this faith. To these young men, he says, good job. Your salvation is working its way out into your sanctification. Excellent. Continue on this path. And then to these children, the paideia, the new believers, the ones who need nurturing, the ones who have a very promising future as mature believers, have not yet had the opportunity to mature in their faith. Like I said, John is not writing a polemic against any of these groups. The first time around, he is commending all of them. And then he is giving them cautions, exhortations after this. He is not bringing in that fourth group that Paul brings in because he is expecting that everyone in his congregation is going to grow into maturity. He is not here to ridicule any of them for falling out of maturity or for failing to mature. He is encouraging them all to grow. And this one is the Pideon, the children by maturity and age. Not in relationship to God, they are all 
technion. But these ones specifically are paideia, infants, babies, toddlers in Christ. And just like when the babies were born and they continue in their flesh for a little bit, acting like they're still in the womb, they haven't quite got the message, they start to learn things that they could never have learned in the womb. A child learning to recognize the face of its parent. Just like we learn to recognize the face of our father. A child learning to identify things in the world. Where we start to identify spiritual things. A child learning to play and to enjoy. These are things they could never do in the womb. Children learning to play together, just like we in the body of Christ learn to work together, learn to enjoy life in Christ together. Now Paul's metaphor, at first he needed to give them milk. These paideia, these young children in the word need milk. They need to be nurtured by these mature believers in the church. Soon they'll start eating food a little closer to solid food. Guess what? Soon they're even going to start to feed themselves. They're going to know what to do when they open their Bible. They're going to know how to study God's word. They're going to know how to take it upon themselves to grow in their maturity. Okay, now this might get a little messy at first. These are growing pains. We cannot expect a brand new believer to act like the mature believers in the congregation. We were saved by grace and we were given the opportunity to grow up by grace. And we give those in our congregation the ability to grow up in an environment of love and grace. Where we do not wink at sin but we love them through it so that they can mature. Just like a parent does not disown their child every time they disobey, but that doesn't make the disobedience better. But they love the child and teach them a better way. And soon they're eating together, feeding themselves and they don't make quite such a mess. They're able to sit at the adult table and eat for themselves but this is not what we want. We don't want big Christian babies who can't feed themselves, who can't eat solid food. No, we don't get to just sit in the body of Christ and kick and scream and wish that we could be ministered to. You will never be satisfied in the body of Christ if you are looking for someone to serve you. You will be satisfied in the body of Christ when you find someone to serve because you are serving Christ. Many, many Christians will say this church just wasn't ministering to me. It wasn't serving me. It's not what I needed. Well, maybe it was. and Maybe there was someone sitting next to you who needed your nurturing. That is the only place you are going to find satisfaction. We're growing up together in the love of Christ. 
that should overflow into loving one another. What is his commendation to them? I love this. Because you know the Father. Once again, guess what? This is that perfective tense of knowing. You have come to know him intensely, intimately. You children, brand new believers. This is going to be instrumental in John's argument when he gets to his exhortation to these children because he comes back to these people who are coming into the congregation and giving them a different message, saying that we have a corner on God. We know deep, intimate information about him, and it's different than what the apostles told you. John is going to tell them, you already know him intimately and deeply. Don't go off into the weeds following these people who make the claim, but are obviously not even in fellowship with God. He's going to tell them to continue to believe the things that they have believed from the apostles. So in the world around us, in the world of the flesh, the one we see and the one we touch, who is the most vulnerable in our society to being corrupted by the world? Obvious, right? The children. In the body of believers, these children are often the ones who are eaten up and spit out because they're expected to just be mature already. These are the ones who need love. The ones who need someone to come alongside them, to lift them up, to train them, to open God's word and teach them how to use it. Who is the most vulnerable to spiritual attacks? The ones who have not been long weathered. The ones who don't yet have all the information of the youths in Christ. These infants, infants in Christ, they need lifting up. They need help. They are the most vulnerable to false doctrine. John's heart starts to come out on the pages here in chapter 2. Just like Paul's when he finally gets to Galatians 5, and he's telling these, this Galatian church that began by faith, and then they start to try to keep the law to be sanctified. You are saved by faith. You are sanctified by faith. You continue in that faith. You don't get sanctified by a different means than you were saved. And so finally, he says, you were running well. You were doing so good. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who came in and told you something different? Who kicked you off the racetrack and said, try a different way? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Be on the lookout for these young Christians who need a hand up. We're going to spend next week on the exhortation. But I'll give you that pattern that John has here in chapter 2. In verse 14, he's going to address the fathers once again. And guess what? He is going to copy and paste the statement he made in their commendation. Not one difference. Why? Because 
they shouldn't do anything different. They need to keep on keeping on. They are mature and they are standing strong in their faith and they should continue to mature and be strong in their faith. To these youths, the ones whose faith is not tested, John warns them not to be seduced by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We'll talk about that next week. And then in verse 18, he comes back to these infants in Christ, and he tells them not to be deceived by the spirit of the Antichrist. And then in verse 28, he's going to come back to all of the children, all of the technia, and address them once more and say, abide in him. And he's going to tell us that this is how we are sanctified as we keep our hope trained on our future promise of glory together with him, we grow in him. And so this is the goal. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man to teach every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, serving according to his power which mightily works within me. The goal for believers in the body is to mature. We are made for that purpose of maturing, just like a newborn baby is made to grow into an adult. A normal baby will grow into being a normal, mature adult. A normal Christian should grow from a newborn in Christ to an adult in Christ. And you know, this doesn't take as long spiritually. You can reach mature adulthood, or at least a vibrant, vital youth in Christ in just a year or two. It doesn't take that long to learn the basic doctrines of our faith. But then to walk in them for the rest of your life, you will continue to mature. Being a father or a mother, grandparent, great-grandparent, great-great-grandparent, having more and more generations to minister to as more and more people come into the body of Christ. A normal Christian matures into his faith, into the riches of grace afforded to him at the moment of salvation, and he uses those gifts to edify the saints, to glorify God in nurturing God's family. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the Apostle John, whose heart we see spilled out here for those he ministered to. We pray that we might share in his fellowship, share in his love for one another, share in his concern for our Christian brothers and sisters to grow up into maturity, to grow up in the love of Christ, to grow up in intimacy with you. And we pray that we might as well continue to mature. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.